Welcome to Profiles. I'm Gina Asher. Profiles is a weekly program that introduces members of our community, as well as notable visiting artists, scholars, and entertainers, to our WFIU audience. Our guest today is Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Lane DeGregory, who writes for the Tampa Bay Times and whose work is praised for bringing little-known stories to life, stories that are told through the eyes of people not often heard or seen in the news. Welcome, Lane DeGregory. Thank you. You've often said that your work focuses on people in the shadows, and your Pulitzer Prize-winning story, The Girl in the Window, certainly is an example of this. You told the story of what authorities called a feral child who at age six had been kept in a closet and could not communicate. Would you share that story with us? Oh, certainly. Um, I had been working at the Times for about eight years, and I'd worked a lot with a woman who runs the Heart Gallery in Tampa Bay, which is um, they put pictures of children who have had their parental rights terminated up in malls and video arcades and churches, and they try to get the community to fall in love with these faces of these children. And so she and I had been working together for eight years, and she'd always call me and say, oh, we're hanging up the Hart Gallery here, or there's you know an exhibit there. And I kept telling her, if you ever have a, one child who's really special or has a unique story, or one family who's looking to adopt that has something different about them, I'd much rather write about a single person than about the 350 kids that need families because I think if you can shine a spotlight on on one person, it illuminates it for the rest of them a whole lot better than here's a whole mass of kids that you can't help. I think readers connect a lot more with a single subject. So she called me in January of 2008 and she said, oh, we've got this little girl who's just come into the Heart Gallery. Um, We've never had a kid like this before. She's a feral child. And she used that term right away. And I thought, I'd never heard of that outside of, you know, Mowgli in the Jungle Book or something. So it was astounding from that moment that, that she mentioned that. And at the time she said, you know, this this child has been left in this room. It was basically like a garage on the floor on a mattress with snakes and roaches and all kinds of animals. And she'd been basically left there alone except for her mom putting in a bottle of chocolate milk every once in a while. So She's six, almost seven years old. She was in a a diaper still. She couldn't walk. She couldn't talk. She couldn't swallow solid food. And the police found her and took her away. So by the time she got to the heart gallery, she'd been in uh, the hospital for almost a year while they were trying to help her back to some kind of physical normalcy. Um, And then she was in a medical needs foster home. And they told me the best hope they had for this little girl was to put her in a really nice nursing home. And my son was seven at the time, my youngest son, and I just it I couldn't fathom the only hope for this kid being a nursing home. So between the time that the woman initially pitched the story at me and the time that we got to meet Danny, that she had actually been seen, her face had been seen in this heart gallery by a family who wanted to take her home. So we got to follow the progress, basically, from the time she was brought into the home of this amazing Christian family who didn't know anything about her or what had happened to her um, for the first six months where they were trying to teach her to integrate into a family life. And basically the premise of it was like, can can a family's love and understanding make up for a lifetime of neglect? And we were able to witness those first six months. That story was viewed online more than a million times. Many newspapers picked it up. Would you share a little bit of it with us? Certainly. The beginning of the story starts when she was found by the police officer and what the conditions were like where she was. And then this time, this is when she's basically taken to the hospital and they're trying to to help rescue her. The the police said if she'd been left there another couple days, she probably wouldn't have made it. Her name, her mother had said, was Danielle. She was almost seven years old. She weighed 46 pounds. She was malnourished and anemic. In the pediatric intensive care unit, they tried to feed the girl, but she couldn't chew or swallow solid food, so they put her on an IV and let her drink from a bottle. Aides bathed her, scrubbed the sores on her face, trimmed her torn fingernails. They had to cut her tangled hair before they could comb out the lice. Her caseworker determined that she had never been to school, never seen a doctor. She didn't know how to hold a doll, didn't understand peekaboo. Quote, due to the severe ne- neglect, a doctor would write, the child will be disabled for the rest of her life. 
Hunched in an oversized crib, Danielle curled in on herself like a potato bug, then writhed angrily, kicking and thrashing. To calm herself, she batted at her toes and sucked her fists, like an infant, one doctor wrote. She wouldn't make eye contact. She didn't react to heat or cold or pain. The insertion of an IV needle elicited no reaction. She never cried. With a nurse holding her hands, she could stand and walk sideways on her toes like a crab. She couldn't talk, didn't know how to nod yes or no. Once in a while, she grunted. She couldn't tell anyone what had happened, what was wrong, or what hurt. For our listeners, um, could you talk a little bit about following up on this story? Because you did recently um, revisit Danny and her current situation. Yeah, we spent six months following her, and we actually was such a, a gift as a reporter to witness things like her learning how to use the bathroom, her learning how to chew a piece of ham, her learning how to you know fill up a glass of water. But we wanted to know down the road what that would mean for her. So three years later, we went back. Um, the family had moved out of Florida, where we had reported it, to Tennessee, and they were living on a farm. And we got to go back and spend uh, four days with her and her family. We didn't know what to expect, you know, because everyone kept saying, well, she might be able to learn to talk. We might have caught her in enough time that we could save the, the language patterning. But when we got there, she, she wasn't able to talk. They had tried to teach her sign language, but she didn't have any small motor skills. She couldn't brush her teeth or, or cut with a pair of scissors or hold a pencil. So the sign language didn't work. Um, so they'd gotten her a board, like a speaking board, where you could punch a button to say, you know, bathroom or book or something. But I think the thing that was most heartwarming and hopeful was she knew she recognized us. Well, maybe she didn't recognize who we were, but she made eye contact. She acknowledged that we were there. In fact, at one point, we were walking through this fair, and she stepped back to hold my hand. And I about cried because the first six months we were reporting the story, she didn't even know we were there. She was in her own world, almost severe autistic presenting, where she would just make sounds and stare at the ceiling and twirl around. But three years later, she she connected with people. We we ran into some friends of hers from the special ed school at this fair, and they all ran up and hugged her, and she was so happy to see them. And I thought, she has friends. You know, she, she can't talk or communicate, but she has friends, and, and they make her happy. And she she was so much more aware of her surroundings and connected, and she could um, understand commands, you know, go get your hairbrush or go put your shoes on. And she knew what you were saying, and she could oblige, um, and she could make her wants known a whole lot better. I think at the first six months, you know, she'd had meltdowns very frequently, and it was a lot of frustration about not being able to communicate her wants or needs. But within those three years, she calmed down a lot. She was Her night terrors was gone. She was sleeping, and she could definitely, like, pull you to the direction she wanted you to go and show you what she needed or wanted. So it felt like a whole lot more hope for her. That's very satisfying for a journalist who rarely has the opportunity to follow a story that deeply and to revisit it. So it must be very satisfying personally just to see how that ends up. And I'm sure you would like to see Danny again periodically and see how things are going. Oh, yes. It was, it was hard for three years to not have contact mm-hmm, with her. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, probably this story has been five years old now, and I still get an email at least once a month asking how she is or, mm-hmm. or what happened to her. So I know readers from around the world were wondering about that, too. So it was really nice to be able to give people a little picture of now and have a little hope to it, you know. Did you have a sense when you were working on it on some level that it was a powerful story that it could be a Pulitzer contender. Did that ever even float through your head? No. I mean, (laughs) I I knew it was a great story when she gave me the tip. And I've been a journalist for 20 years then, now 25 for me. But at 20 years, you know, there's a bar of like, have I heard this story before? Because, you know, a lot of stories recycle Mm -hmm. and other papers do them. But I'd never heard or read a story about a feral child. And initially, we thought it was going to be like a great Sunday story for Easter, which was about three months from the time we started reporting. But the more we got into it and the more unusual we realized it was, and I started doing research about other feral children, and there hadn't been one in the United States since 1970. And there had been a big, big study then about this girl named Jeannie, and a PBS special had been done. And But that was, you know, 34 years and earlier. she was older. 
Yeah, she was 13. And so they knew with her that there wasn't as much chance to save her as with Danny. They thought, "Mm, the language mapping is usually done by age three. She's six and a half. Can we, is there a piece of her we can save? So, you know, that realizing how unusual it was. And then the parents were so, at first they didn't want us to do the story at all. But once we got in and started reporting with it, they were letting us spend the night at their house. They were really welcoming us into every piece of the her life, and that made it a whole lot easier to report too. You know, so I guess this, the story kept getting better as it went on, and the more reporting we did, and the more people we talked to, the more we kept saying, "Can we have some more time? <laughs> we need more time to do this story." Um, but no, I, I never thought of it as a Pulitzer contender. I just thought I was very, very privileged to be able to share this amazingly unusual story, and it had such elements of. of Good and bad. You know, there was this this birth mother that you didn't know why she had done this, what had happened. There was kind of this unknown evil entity on one side. But then there was this family that took her in that was so generous and loving and hopeful that I think part of the appeal of the story was you got both ends of it. You know, you got the really bad and the really good and, and then this arc of, of humanity in the middle of it. And so. it did run in three three pieces of a series with each of those topics. It ran in one one Sunday. They ran it all together. It was in three parts, but it all ran on the same Sunday. So I think the listeners probably know and journalists know that the Pulitzer really is a pinnacle award. It is the top. What was that like for you? And and also I have to say I appreciate that you're using the the word we instead of I. So there were people working on this with you, but the award is in your name. It was definitely a team effort. I mean, I reported the story from beginning to end with photographer Melissa Little, and um, she deserved the prize for her photos as much, if not more, than I did for my story. They were amazing. And I had an incredible editor named Mike Wilson who held my hand the whole way and was really instrumental in the third part of the story. I didn't want to talk to the birth mother, quite frankly. I thought I would write the story from the moment she was taken away to follow her through the family. And he insisted we go back and meet this birth mother, which really made the story. It gave you the whole background and and helped you figure out how she got where she was. His point was you have to show how bad it was to show how good it gets. Um, So he was real instrumental in shaping that piece of the reporting as well. As for the prize, it was probably the best way you could win a prize because I wasn't a finalist. I mean, there are three finalists for the Pulitzer Prize that the other journalists pick, and then those finalists get sent up to the board, which is the people who do poetry and music and literature and everything else, so not just journalists. And I knew the three finalists. Um, One of them was the the gentleman who sat next to me, John Barry, who'd written a series about Winter the Dolphin that they made that movie out of, The Dolphin's Tale. And John was a finalist. So I was cheering for him that whole day. I was out reporting about this horrible teenage girl murdering another teenage girl story. I was on call, writing on deadline, and I kept calling and texting the newsroom like, did John win? Did he hear? Did he win? And no one had heard anything. And so I got back, and I was writing my story, my murder story on deadline. And the story was due at 6 o'clock, and uh, about 6.30, my phone starts ringing, and, and I ignored it because I'm on deadline, and I'm busting deadline. <laughs> oh, it's you're a Friday after night. deadline. <laughs> yeah, I've already busted the deadline. It's a Friday night, you know. I'm like, okay, I'm going to ignore my phone. And then a car pulled up in front of my house, and I heard my dogs barking. They were in the front yard. And I looked out the window, and it was my editor. And I thought, oh, shoot, he's coming to spank me because <laughs> it's Friday night and he wants to go home. And, and I'm still with this story. So he came to the door. And then all of a sudden, the managing editor comes up behind him. And I thought, OK, this is really weird. Maybe they, they must be inviting me to a party for John, you know. So they both came up on the deck. And I was so flustered. And I was apologizing. Oh, my story's almost done. You know, I'll be done in half an hour. And the dogs were barking. And I shoved him in the house. And, and I didn't even invite my editor or the managing editor in my home. I stood on the deck because I was trying to get the dogs out of there and like cover my butt you know about my <laughs> deadline and I said oh did John win you know was John the Pulitzer winner and they said nope nope you know for the first time in the history of the prize the the board did not pick one of the three finalists so none of those three finalists won and I said oh my god that's so horrible I, I can't believe that John lost to nobody you know it's bad enough to not win but to lose to nobody and my editor put his arm around me and he said maybe this will make you feel better he said they picked yours out of the pile and I, I just fell down on the deck chair on my deck and started crying I, I was so unexpected it was so emotional and I felt really badly for John at the same time that I was overwhelmed with excitement for me because my, my goal 
I'd wanted to be a reporter since I was about eight years old. I grew up in D.C. during Watergate, and my goal had always been to work for the St. Petersburg Times. I never thought beyond that. I never thought, like, can I win a prize? Will I be one of those, you know, revered people? When I walked in the St. Pete Times door in 2000, I thought, I have reached the pinnacle of my career. So it was it was such a, a big cherry on the cupcake to get that, you know, but it wasn't anything I ever even aspired to, much less hoped for. So how did things change if they did? You you still go to work. You still have the same editor. You're still sitting next to your colleagues. Did anything change? Well, that prize came in 2009, which was the same year that things started really going south for the newspaper industry. So when I when I found out I won the prize, I called my friend who was the researcher for the story, and I said, "We won, we won, we won." And she goes, "Great! That means we get to keep our jobs another year." You know, so <laughs> so to me, it was like a job security. A bunch of people were getting laid off. A bunch of people were getting, you know, the older people were getting bought out, and it just seemed like a really kind of a a turning point in in print journalism to begin with. So it it, it didn't change anything for me in terms of there weren't bunches of other people calling for me, you know, to come work for them or offering me bigger, greater jobs. What it did, I think, was get my name out there. The story was picked up and, and translated into 14 languages. It went all over the world, you know. And so I got started getting calls from universities and other newspapers to come and speak and conferences and, you know, international writers things that I hadn't been a part of before. So that, that I think that exposure changed for me. And it definitely, I think, helped solidify my spot at the Times. I mean, they always, they, they knew me and appreciated me, but I was brought into the Times as a feature writer. I'd never been part of the newsroom. We were in a different floor, you know, a different part of the building. So I think that helped integrate me into the newsroom a bit more as well. And other people started saying, oh, she's not just like the fluff writer person. You know, <laughs> it sort of legitimized a little bit of, of the human interest stuff that I'd been doing. Did it change your, your leverage, I guess? Were you able to pitch more stories that you wanted to do? Did it change? It, were you still covering weekends and... And oh, yeah. all of that. Yeah, I have. The, my, I had. He just left. My editor just left to work for Nate Silver. He's the new managing editor for Five Thirty Eight. So I just lost him. But he he hired me when I came in two thousand, and he'd been my editor for thirteen years, which you know that's longer than a lot of marriages. <laughs> <laughs> I was really lucky to have him. So it did. He. I always felt respected by him. I always felt like he trusted when I would pitch a story, and he was very. Um, one of the things that Mike did the best for me was I'd pitch 10 stories at him and he'd say, okay, these two are the only ones that are worthy of you. So he would help me choose what not to do. So I don't think that changed a lot. And and we did. I was still on, you know, one week a month. I was chasing ambulances, you know, whatever the news was, I still did that. So it didn't change anything much in, in the day to day in terms of what I do, you know, for my job or anything like that. But I felt like I didn't have to worry so much about losing it. <laughs> You're drawn to stories that people want to tell. It's stories about people. They may be um, participating directly in some trend or issue, but you like to tell the story from the point of view of some person. How do you find these people? The first the first few years I was um, – Doing narrative writing, I I'd covered news for about ten years um, in a bureau where I was writing three stories a day, and I covered everything from you know Myrtle trials to city commission meetings to fishing contests. You know, um, so the news background I think helped a lot in terms of being able to sort of just talk to anybody and find the story in, in whatever issue it was. And when I started covering narratives, a lot of the stories were based on people I found or stories that I'd heard that involved a certain person, their quest or their whatever their their next goal or mission was. And then Mike sort of helped me reframe that a little bit to, to start looking at issues or ideas and then find a person to use their viewpoint to illuminate a, a larger issue. So the year after I did, well, no, two years after I did The Girl in the Window, Florida was under this, this horrible epidemic of overdoses of prescription painkillers. And we had more people on our state dying of that than anywhere else. And a female judge set up the first all-female drug court for these young women to try to help them regain their sobriety. They'd lost their kids. They'd lost their jobs. They'd lost their homes. And so she had hundreds, if not thousands, of women coming through every Tuesday to Ladies' Day in drug court. And we had written about, you know, the prescription pill problems and the medical examiner's 
cry and, and the doctors who were being arrested and the police who were trying to, to break down these pill mills. But nobody had written about somebody who was actually addicted. And so we spent about a month in drug court um, in 2011 and interviewed more than 100 women that came in and out of that drug court trying to find a subject who would let us follow her through her hopefully recovery. And we ended up landing on three women, and I spent a year following these three women as they struggled through halfway houses and getting sent back to jail and and their rehab and counseling and their poor mothers who were taking care of their children and them trying to get a job. And so that that was one of the first stories where we looked at this big giant issue and we we actually sat down at Christmas time and said, what's the biggest issue facing our community in the next year? And it was this prescription pill problem. And I said, well, I want to put a face on that. You know, everybody else has done a great job reporting the news of it, but I want to put a face on it. And so that was, you know, a a way kind of to – but it took 100 women before we found three that would let us really spend time narrating their stories. And then we ended up narrowing it down and just writing about one of them. The key to all of this, of course, is great interviewing skills. You have to get people to trust you and to be willing to share their stories with you. A longtime journalist I know once said that she coached new reporters to not worry about being nervous about interviewing people, that if you're not nervous, you're probably not going to do a very good job. You've been doing this a long time. What is your key to interviewing, especially since you're asking people to really share personal, intimate details of their lives? I still get nervous. (laughs) I mean, 25 years, I still get butterflies in my stomach on the way to interviews, and I still feel like I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy to tell this person's story. Who am I to tell your life story to 400,000 readers? You know, I, I feel like it's it's a huge privilege, but it's also a burden to get it right, you know. And I've switched a lot. I still make my legal pad worth of questions before I go to an interview. I have to have at least 25, 30 questions in my quiver, you know, to make myself feel comfortable. But I usually go in without a notepad or at least without procuring it like a shield like I used to do and hope to have a conversation to begin with. I usually start out by trying to have a conversation of of telling people a little bit about me. I think when I was young, I felt like I'm supposed to be you know, Teflon journalist person and no one wants to know or or needs to know my story. And now I tell them I'm 47 years old. I've got two teenage boys. I've got two really rowdy dogs. And my husband is a drummer and I drive an old car. And, you know, just a little bit about me so they can look at me as, as Lane, the person, not some scary journalist. And I also don't use the word journalist or reporter. I say I'm a writer. I think just rhetorically, people aren't scared of writers, whereas journalist or reporter has this whatever reputation of being out to get you. And and I don't want that. I want to write your story. Um, And I usually let people drive the bus at the beginning, especially if I've got time. I'll say, what would you like people to know? Or tell me your story and let them start rather than me sort of hammering at them. Once I get to the point where I feel like I'm having a conversation like at a bar or a cocktail party, I know I'm having a good interview. You know, so that that's become a lot more important to me than then I can come back and fill in the blanks and get the facts and, and I hold off on the hard questions a lot till I feel like the person is comfortable with me. Um, and then I always want to leave the door open at the end. Like, I'll forget to ask you something. Can I call you back? Can I come back? You know, sometimes I'll actually leave something at the house so I have an excuse to come <laughs> back, you know, but just to leave that window open. And because you are a lot of your stories, you're asking people to share really personal things. What do you think about the idea of objectivity? The same friend that I mentioned a moment ago says no one can be objective. We just have to know what our biases are and be aware when we're asking questions. So you you definitely are forming relationships with these people, especially if you're spending a lot of time with them over a period of time. How do you maintain that balance or that that fairness that my friend mentions? I totally agree with your friend. I don't think there's any such thing as objectivity. Um, I think we all strive for that. I think that's a great, you know, thing to hold of us. Like, yes, we should be that. But especially when you're doing really intimate human interest journalism, you can't. It was easy for me. I don't have a whole lot of opinions about politics or or economics or money and stuff. So that was easy when I was covering news to, to really try to balance out both sides. But I err on the side of falling in love with my subjects. And I usually end up caring about them probably a lot more 
then you can care about someone and still be objective. So I, I used my editor a lot for that. I mean, I joked with him when, when he got promoted to managing editor and he kept me as his only reporter. I said, you have to get a couch for your office because I, I need you to almost be my therapist. I felt like if I can at least tell Mike, I really love this person and they're touching me in this way or that person really upset me or pissed me off or I didn't believe them, they're lying to me. At least I have him as sort of a sounding board. He was a lot more... Um, well, he said his hardest job was unhallmarking me. So <laughs> he was he was a lot better about maintaining objectivity. And he pushed me a lot, a lot, a lot to find what he called the bruise on the apple. So if something seemed more perfect and beautiful and wonderful than it was, find out what's wrong. There's something wrong. And, and if there's even a little tiny bruise, it makes it more real. So in the Girl in the Window story, we ended up spending the night at the house and finding out that their son had given up his bedroom for Danny, for the feral child that they painted with, you know, Hello Kitty and pink. And he was living in the laundry room. He had a little tiny bed beside the washer and dryer. And that was the bruise on the apple. You know, this family was so angelic and perfect and had gold shining halos over their head. But the little boy was scared and he had been sort of displaced. And that was the bruise on the apple in that story. So I think that's how I try to balance it out. I, I wouldn't call it objectivity, but trying to just find a balance of, of good and bad and um, a, a window to the truth, I guess. We're talking with journalist Lane DeGregory, whose work in the Tampa Bay Times has earned a Pulitzer Prize as well as numerous other awards for their insight into the stories of what she calls people in the shadows. As we go to break, we're going to hear Me and Bobby McGee by Chris Christofferson. Why are you choosing this song for us? I think this was the first song that I heard as a kid that resonated as a story. And it might have even been influential in terms of people in the shadows. I was brought up in a very middle class, you know, go to church, go to school, do the right things. And the freedom and sort of the going across the country with a, a boyfriend or girlfriend that you love just spoke to me as a little kid even. And the more I listen to that song, the more brilliant I feel it is in terms of the structure and, and the narrative use of language. Not only that, but the message about freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. I think if we can all hold that as a, a mantra, it will make the stories that I tell come to life a whole lot better. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Busted flat and Baton Rouge and heading for the trains. Feeling nearly faded as my jeans. Bobby thumbed a diesel down just before it rained. Took us all away to New Orleans. I took my harpoon out of my dirty red bandana And was blowing sad while Bobby sang the blues With them windshield wipers slapping time And Bobby clapping hands We finally sang a the song we're back with Pulitzer Prize winner Lane DeGregory of the Tampa Bay Times, who's been telling us about her kind of journalism that shares the stories of people whose lives are affected by larger issues. Welcome back. Thank you. I'd like for you to share with our listeners how you actually write the story. We've heard about the interviewing and developing the stories and the long investment of time in working with sources. But what happens when you sit down to your desk and you're in front of that blank Word document? Terror. <laughs> um, I, I worked on The Girl in the Window for six months, and at that time that was the longest I'd ever worked on a story. But I didn't write a word until I was all done with the reporting. And in hindsight, I wish I had written scenes as they happened. I wish I had written them while they were fresh because it was hard going back through six months of notes and uh, trying to – revive all those emotions and, and the extraneous stuff that's outside the notebook. But I usually write my stories in the shower. I mean, <laughs> I, I keep in a, your head, in right? My head. <laughs> but I keep a notepad everywhere. I've got one. Of course, I've got one in my purse. I've got one in my glove box. I've got one by the 
toilet in my bathroom. I've got one by the kitchen sink. I've got one in the laundry room. And so wherever I am, I like to engage myself in some kind of like physical activity while I'm trying to write in my head because if I sit there and stare at the computer, I get terrified and I look at a blank screen and everything goes blank. So when I'm walking my dogs or when I'm taking a shower or washing dishes or folding laundry, sort of those menial tasks that you don't have to think about, you know, but they get your body in motion. That's usually when I'm writing in my head. And I can't, I can't let myself sit at the computer until I've got that lead straightened out in my mind. And usually it's like four or five little notebooks that I've scattered pieces of before I can put it together. But I, I work longer on the lead than probably the whole rest of the story put together usually. So the first section like I'll write to the jump, and when I get to know I'm six to eight inches in and they're probably going to jump the story, then I want to have a kicker that's going to, you know, like take you through the commercial, you know, make, <laughs> make you want to turn the page or, or not go flip the channel. Um, so that's that's the first piece I think about is, is how am I going to open it? What's it going to look like? And I try to find a scene so that it can be cinematic. So I often will close my eyes and think if I'm going to watch a movie of this. Where's the camera going to go? Um, are you going to pan in really tight on something? Or are you going to back up and do some Steinbeckian scene where you give the evolution of you know the geography of the scene and, and figure out where the focus is going to be before I start? And then my a wise editor I had when I was very young, actually the guy who probably took me from being a, a reporter in a bureau to being able to be thought of as myself, at least think of as a writer, he used to take my notes from me. And he would put him in his office and he would say, you know this story. You've been out there for an hour, a day, a week, a month, whatever. You have the story inside of you. Don't be beholden to your notes. Don't worry about quoting all 17 people that you talk to because they're probably not all important. And and don't worry about long, drawn-out quotes from people because you're the writer. You can say it better yourself. So I started writing without my notes. And um, now I stash them you know, in my car or my kitchen or somewhere so I'd, I'm not – you can procrastinate a lot by flipping through your notes and you can pretend you're getting somewhere by like going back and, and highlighting and making notes on notes. But to sit down f- without the burden of that and to just be able to tell a story is really, I think, the, what frees me up. Um, I usually tell it out loud to my dog first. She sits on my feet while I type and I'll be like, hey, Taz, I'm doing a story about, you know, and if I can say it out loud and hear it out loud, it's a lot easier to type it after that. And, and I... I don't make myself stay there forever, but I do give myself a limit so I don't keep popping up and getting distracted. One thing I've done forever and ever that I'm trying to get my teenage boys to do is just write in a Word document. I close the Facebook. I close the Twitter. I turn off my cell phone because it's so easy to be distracted. And and I want to be able to just be in my head. I I call it going into the cave. I said, don't bother me. I'm going into the cave. And, And I'll write to a Diet Coke. If I could, I'll write till I finish my Diet Coke, okay, then I can stop, go get another Diet Coke, walk around, do whatever it is. But to have that discipline, which is usually about 15, 20 inches to get that out at a time, I make that sort of like my hourglass. <laughs> do you work a lot at home then? I do. I write almost all my stories at home, except for that week we're on call, you know, well, when we're covering yes. news. Yes. But, but that was one thing when I came to the Times, I told my editor, I really – I can't write in the newsroom. There's too many fun people to talk to and too many other things going on. Speaking the, of self-discipline. Yeah, the TV's on. You know, there's somebody shouting over here. Someone's interviewing over there. Someone's baking brownies over here. It's just too much of a distraction. So I have a little tiny office that used to be a part of the porch of my house that we closed in and um, not much distraction in there. And I, I get the photographers to print out the pictures for me, just like on a Xerox machine, you know, not a good print, but I tape them up all over my office. So I'm sort of immersed in their images while I'm writing as well. And that helps a lot. So instead of having my notes, I've got their images. Um, And then, of course, I go back with my notes and fill in the real quotes and the real facts and stuff like that. But I want to get the story out first um, before I'm sort of burdened by all of that. Some reporters also don't want to revisit the people they've interviewed. And we talked earlier in the program that that you do keep in touch with people, certain people over time, especially if you want to go back and revisit the story itself. What about the one-off story, the story that you're probably not going to revisit? Do you cultivate these connections with people? Um, the, The reporters who don't have told me that they consciously don't that they, they have to have a finite ending to their relationship with the sources. 
other people feel like the sources have shared these details and there's this responsibility to sort of keep track of them. What's your take on that? I, I kind of feel obligated not to shut the door, you know. And, and also part of that is selfish. I think every person I interview, if, if they are okay with the story, they could turn me on to two, three, four. I mean, I've gotten lots of stories off of other people that I've written about, so I don't want to shut that possibility. But the difficulty, because a lot of the people that I write about, not only are they in the shadows, but they're they're lonely or they're poor or they're living in some really frightening transition. And so the hard part is cutting them off because I can explain to them, like the girl in drug court, you know, I can explain to her, while I'm reporting this story, I can't give you a ride. I can't buy you a sandwich. I can't take you to see your kid because I need to be the reporter. But when the story's over and they're calling asking for money or rides or, you know, can you help vouch for me at this pizza place because I want a job, that's kind of the hard part to extricate yourself from that. And and that's a part that I'm still... I struggle with, you know, after the stories come out, I have helped. And I have also said, no, leave me alone because I can't keep helping. And and that's the personal part is, is really hard trying to figure out that. Not the people who don't need you, but, but because so many people I write about do, you know, and, and they feel like, oh, this, you know, homeless people or, or I wrote about a bunch of sex offenders living under a bridge. And that guy, five years later, he still calls me, oh, I'm out of jail. You know, can you come help me? And, and it's, it's hard to when they've given you their life and their story. And a lot of times good happens for them because of the story. You know, other people, readers want to help. And that makes me feel great. But it's hard for me to either say, no, I can't help you or okay, I can't keep helping you, you know, after a little bit, so. Didn't you actually spend a lot of time under the bridge with those people for that story? Yeah, we spent Sort of four an days. embedded kind of experience. The photographer and I spent like four days down there with them, yeah. And uh, it was great. I mean, they, they couldn't have been more kind. My husband and my kids were freaked out I was down there, but I never felt unsafe or unaccepted. And, you know, a lot of times people like that, like, I think one of the best parts of my job is when you can make somebody look at somebody that they look down on in a different way. You can humanize somebody and say, they're, they're okay, they've got this label of being a sex offender, but they're still a father, a, a man, a brother, a son, you know, and, and show that, that part of the person that other people still care about. That's really gratifying to me, to be able to humanize people that have been demonized. I write a lot about homeless people, but one of the most awesome stories was about this man who was an artist and he was this amazing cartoonist who was living behind the library under a tree, you know, with a backpack. And when the story came out and people saw this talent in this guy, you know, he said, people are being nicer to all my friends now because of your story. And I just went, oh, that's the greatest thing to happen, you know, because we've got a lot of homeless people in St. Petersburg and, and a lot of people are annoyed by them. And to me, it's really awesome to be able to put a face on this person and say, they're not just this drunk, derelict person that's thrown everything away. There's people with hard times and talents who want something else. And so that's the kind of the piece I want to bring out of it. Did you always want to be a reporter, a journalist? I did. I, I grew up in Washington, D.C. during Watergate. I was like second grade. And my dad would read the Washington Post to my sister and I while we were eating Cheerios and talk about these young men bringing down the president. And I thought, oh, that's the coolest <laughs> thing ever. You know, my, my mom's an English teacher. I loved writing ever since I could write my name. I, I loved writing stories and poems and things. And my dad was always very practical, like, how are you going to make a living doing that, Lane? You know, and so reading the Post growing up, you know, having that great example of journalism. And then I'm just insatiably curious about people. I love the excuse to be able to ask you anything I want to ask you and, and have a badge that says, yes, it's okay to ask you this. I'm very, very nosy. I, I like to eavesdrop and I want to know what make pe makes people tick. And so I think the the gratification came from a young age too. And um, I was the editor of my middle school paper, editor of my high school paper, won a gold crown at Columbia. So it was a really good high school paper. And then I went to um, the University of Virginia because it was the only school that had a daily student newspaper and no journalism department. So there were no grown-ups directing us. So <laughs> by the time I was 22, I had a staff of, you know, 300 kids and a budget of a half million dollars. And I was running the whole thing. And um, I, I always thought I wanted to do hard news. I did. I wanted to bring down the president. You know, I wanted to right wrongs and, and upset the establishment and uh, expose wrong things. And then after I had um, my first child, and my boys are only a year apart, I, I can, it's a long anecdote, but I, I had a story that I covered where I just 
and maybe I was hormonal because I was pregnant with my second child and I had a little baby, but I, I feel that I felt like I didn't want to do news anymore. I covered this really awful quadruple fatality on Christmas Day where these two parents and their two children drowned in a canal. And I was out there as the the firefighters and the state troopers pulled these bodies out of the car and, and, and went through the trunk looking at the Christmas presents to try to ID who these people were. And I had to follow them to the door of the grandmom's house as they knocked on the door and said, Christmas morning at like 10 in the morning, like, your daughter and your grandkids, and I still can't talk about it. They, they are dead. And I'm standing there on the porch taking notes, doing my diligent duty, and, and I'm at the front row of this amazing news story that I know is going to be on the front page the next day, but I didn't want to do it anymore. And I, I kept thinking, if I could come back next Christmas and talk to this grandmom and let her tell me about her daughter and her grandkids, instead of just getting a quote like, knock, knock, how do you feel? They're dead. It felt cheap and mean and unsatisfying. And I knew I was doing my job, but I just didn't want to do it that way anymore. And um, luckily that kind of coincided. So that was Christmas of 1997. And then my second son was born in March of 1998. And I had three weeks of maternity leave to think about this. You know, what do I want to do? Um, and then they made me an editor for a little while, which I actually didn't like doing. I, I thought I wanted to be an editor, and I, I didn't like it. Didn't like telling other people what to do. I didn't. I wanted to do the stories myself. I didn't want them to do it. But then six months later, um, the Virginian pilot where I was working formed a narrative writing team, and I saw this posting like, "Do you want to tell stories? Do you want to spend time with people instead of shagging quotes?" And I was like, "Yes, yes, that's exactly <laughs> what I do." And at the same time was Tom French, a professor here at IU. He had won the Pulitzer Prize for Angels and Demons, and I read his story and about seven times, and I cried every time I read it, and I thought. I didn't know you could do that in a newspaper. I was an English major, not a journalism major, so I've always read a lot more novels and, and short stories than I have nonfiction and periodicals. And that just seemed like the perfect marriage of, of journalism and storytelling and literature. And so that story coinciding with this time in my life really made me feel like this is the next thing I want to do. And we had... I think 50 reporters from the pilot applied for four positions on this narrative team. And I don't know how I got picked. I was in a bureau three hours away. They made me send clips because I hadn't seen my stories, you know, because I was in a such a far-flung bureau with another edition of the paper. So I had to really apply from scratch. But that that was the luckiest thing that happened to me was, was being able to go from a bureau news reporter with three stories a day to a, a narrative writing team where I was writing about one a week. Um, and then that led to me being able to come to the Times to actually work with Tom, which was the hugest bonus a, a young reporter could get. As we've mentioned, newspapers have taken a real hit in recent years. Is there still a place for this kind of narrative journalism in newspapers? Can they continue to afford to have someone spend six months working on a story? What do you think is going to happen? I, I think there's more of a chance than ever. I'm, I'm really encouraged by the resurgence of like long form and Reddit and news sites that are really celebrating that kind of journalism. I, our paper last year cut loose Michael Cruz, um, a colleague of mine, for an entire year to work on a story about the bounty. But my stories I've always done, the six months I worked on The Girl in the Window, I had 25 other stories. So... I don't want to put myself in the position of having them say, oh, she's expendable. She only writes one story a year. So I'm constantly looking for smaller stories or Sunday stories or something I can use to fill in the blanks while I'm working on these longer stories. I, I think narrative is going to be maybe one of the things that keeps newspapers alive, to tell you the truth, because I don't think people are going to our paper that much for, well, I know they're not looking there for international news coverage or national news coverage, and even a lot of the breaking news, it's still the responsibility of the paper, but it's up on the website, and then it's replaced by the next breaking news thing, whereas the the narrative stories that we write are getting shared, you know, the Sunday one I had last time got shared 4,000 times in a day, and so I know... Even outside of the readership of the Tampa Bay Times, there's people that are looking for, that are hungry for these stories. And I think a lot of those stories that kind of hit on a more universal theme than a city council meeting are going to be the ones that continue to resonate. Um, I hope there's a way, you know, as the print newspaper shrinks, we've talked about this, it hasn't happened yet, but, you know, why couldn't I write 
30 inches for the Sunday paper, but then put 300 inches on the web if you want to read the rest of it. You know, because I report as much for a 30-inch story as I do for a 300-inch story. It's just a matter of what I'm allowed to put in and keep out, you know. So I, I hope maybe there's a way that, that we can parlay that into read the rest of the story online, you know, or keep really longer stories without maybe taking up the, the cost, you know, mm-hmm. of, the, of the footprint in the newsprint itself. How has technology changed the way you work? Um, because you, you just said that you've been in it 25 years, and a lot has happened, clearly. Not just websites, but social media as ways to connect with people. Because you're cultivating this audience, and they want to talk to you. How's that, how does that work out for you? I think the biggest difference is I'm 47 years old, and I think when I started, the whole idea was – Journalists don't put themselves in their stories. Journalists are supposed to be invisible. You're, uh, other Back than, to that objective thing. Exactly. And other than Woodward and Bernstein, I bet most people can't name a lot of news reporters, you know, at least from that era, because you were supposed to be part of the Washington Post or the institution, not some – unless you were a columnist, you know, or had your picture in the paper, you were supposed to be invisible. But in the last 10 years, I really feel, especially with Twitter and, and you know, Facebook a little bit, but even more so Twitter – Journalists are starting to brand themselves. Journalists are starting to become the persona. And there's more of a push, especially in magazines, to put yourself in the, the Tom Wolfe kind of thing, like be be part of the story. I'm really uncomfortable with that. I, I have to have my editor say, put yourself in there for me to do it. Otherwise, I really want to extricate myself and not be there. I, I want people to know it's my story. And I love it when they'll say, oh, I read the whole story and I knew it was your story without even reading your byline. I love that. But I don't want them to see me in that story. I want them to be able to read the story and take away what they will from it, you know, bring their own biases or concerns or, or loves or hates or fears to it, not say, oh, here's what Lane wants me to think or know or understand. Um, and I'm really I'm really technologically challenged. I, I am not good on social media. I have a trouble even getting a picture from my phone to my Facebook. <laughs> so it's been a struggle for me. And luckily, I've got two teenage boys that have held my hand through this and two 30-year-old guys who sit next to me who make fun of me enough that I am, am threatened. To, <laughs> I have to do something about this, you know, but they've helped me a lot, too. And um, it's, you know, the, the network, I haven't gotten into Twitter very much. I'm on it, but I'm not good at it. But the Facebook networking has been incredible um, because I've got so many friends in the community after being there for 14 years that are not from journalism or even from stories I do, though almost, if you look at my friends list, almost everybody I've written about has become my friend on Facebook somehow or other. And, and, and I'll get to them somehow through Facebook if I can't get them on the phone or whatever. Journalism's never been a high-paying industry, and newspaper reporting is hectic, unpredictable, exhausting, even when you're not on the mommy network on Facebook. (laughs) And you do have two sons who are approaching college age. Have you ever been tempted to do something else, perhaps something more lucrative or something calmer? And if you haven't, what stops you? Oh, I've thought about it a lot. I've I've my father kept wanting me to be a technical writer for the government. And well, he's the one who asked, how will you make money? Exactly. <laughs> he's always been worried about that. And my first job in journalism, I got for a little paper, and I was making $16,000 in 1992. And my dad had sent me the government. He worked for the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, was hiring technical writers right out of school for $60,000. And he absolutely couldn't understand why I wouldn't want to do that, have a nine-to-five job and, and make great money. But I wouldn't be happy. It, it wouldn't be satisfying. And the more I've thought about, you know, do I want to go work for a publication somewhere? Do I want to be a book editor? Do I want to teach? You know, and, and I've dabbled at a little bit of all those things. But it felt like work. It didn't feel like fun. And and journalism is exhausting. And, and if you interview my kids, they will tell you how much it's taken away from a normal life. And I mean, what 10-year-old has to worry about his mom sleeping with sex offenders in a tent under the bridge? You know, they've been exposed to pieces of the world and people that I think most other kids haven't been. I never knew what my dad did, but they've been on a million stories with me. And, and so I feel like it's it's grown them in a way. But I don't know another job you could do where every day you learn something new, where every day when you go in in the morning, you don't know what's going to happen. And that it gives you a license to talk. Like, I, I tell the kids, you know, you've hung out with homeless people and you've hung out with, you know, the, the governor candidate, the gubernatorial candidate. There, There's, 
you've seen people I've interviewed in mansions and you've seen people I've interviewed on park benches. And, and I love that you get to suck in the whole world. You get to connect personally, really connect and get to know with people of all different walks of life, all different religions and political backgrounds. And that, I guess it doesn't make up for still driving an old clunky car or, you know, worrying about how I'm going to pay for college for these kids, which is huge. But I feel like the benefit has been growing me and my children and my community and having adventures, you know, like the highs and lows in this job are really exciting and and worth, I don't know, monetarily, but just life experientially just make me feel gratified by doing this. We've been talking with Tampa Bay Times journalist Lane DeGregory, whose work has won top honors, including the Pulitzer Prize for feature writing. She's chosen the song The Boxer, the Mumford & Sons version, to end our conversation today. Tell us why you chose this piece. I always liked The Boxer by Simon and Garfunkel growing up. In fact, it was on the very first album I ever bought with babysitting money. And uh, just like Bobby McGee, I like the narrative of it. I like There's a lot more sorrow in The Boxer, I think, than in me and Bobby McGee. But I chose the Mumford & Sons version because my boys are teenagers, and they've discovered that song through the Mumford and Sons. They didn't know it through old mom's, you know, 1970s music, but they fell in love with it for the same reason I did, because it, it gave you this it's sort of traveling piece of a young person seeking their dream, and it spoke to them, and for once we can actually agree on music we all enjoy. <laughs> Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. My Th- pleasure. This is Gina Asher for Profiles, and thank you for listening. I am just a poor boy, though my story's seldom told. I've squandered my resistance for a pocket full of mumbles, such are promises. All lies and jest, still the man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. When I left my home and my family, I was no more than a boy in the company of strangers. In the quiet of the railway stations Running scared Laying low, seeking out The poor quarters Where the ragged people go Looking for the places Only they will know Well, lie to lie Lie to lie, lie to lie The program you just heard Was recorded in March of 2014 Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. James Gray is the producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.